0: Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Many of us long to pray as these psalmists did. To stretch the heights of praise that they reached. To sink to the depths of sorrow that they expressed. To grasp the vast expanse of imagery and language that they used. And so when it comes to our prayers, we've studied the psalms. And we analyze and categorize and subdivide. We quote, we repeat, we turn them into songs. We look at the words and the images that are used and we adopt them into our own prayers. And all of these things help our prayers and our prayer life. But there's one thing that we see from the psalmists about their prayer life. It's not the forms that they used. It's not the words and the figures that they employed. Rather, it was their relationship with the God to whom they prayed. If we want to pray like the psalmists, we will certainly study the categories and the genres and the kinds. We'll look at the images. We'll look at the pictures. We'll look at the words and the phrases. But the number one thing that we have to get down if we want to pray as the psalmist did is we've got to believe in the same God they believe in. This is far more than simply saying, oh yes, I believe in the God of the Bible. I think every single one of us here this morning would probably say that. Oh oh yeah, I believe in Him. But rather what we need to have is this gut level reliance and dependence, faith and trust that the psalmist had on the God that they have revealed throughout the Psalms. And when we see God as they saw God, when we believe God as they believe God, when we trust God as they trusted God, then praying like the psalmist will not be a matter of getting the forms and figures correct. Praying like the psalmist will become natural. Whether we adopt their forms and figures or not, because we'll have the same relationship they have. This morning, I want us to take a look at the Psalms, and we're going to be looking at quite a few of them. We're going to be moving really quickly, so I put all the the Scriptures on the screen this morning because we're going to be moving through a whole bunch of them. But I will have copies of the outline on the table if you'll want to study that further and look at the passages we use more in depth. Before we get into that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God who has created this universe. You are our sovereign Lord and ruler. You have created us. You are the source of all that happens. And Father, You are the judge, the king. You are the mighty God. You are our rock and our deliverer, our mighty fortress and our strong tower, the horn of our salvation. Father, we thank You because You in Your great power have still looked down upon us with mercy and compassion. You shepherd us and You feed us. You care for us. We know that You hear us. We know that You are near despite the fact that at times it feels like you've hidden your face, we know that you are paying attention, that you are watching out for us, and that you will deliver. And most of all, Lord, we know that your steadfast love endures forever. We are amazed by your love for us. And like the psalmist and psalmate, we, we wonder that you take mind of us, and yet you have, and for that we're very thankful. Father, forgive us because we know that we're sinners. We know that we have stumbled in many ways. We need you to help us look at ourselves, Quit looking at others. Help us to quit worrying about everyone else, but look at ourself and make sure that we're walking in your straight and narrow path. Help us, Father, to pray to you and to grow in our prayers. Help us to maintain this constant connection with you and realize that it's through you that we'll have deliverance and freedom. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Praying like the psalmist's. Believing in the God of the psalmist. The very first thing we need to recognize is that God is. Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We should not overlook this. We can't take this for granted as we might easily do. We say, oh yeah, God is. We know that. There's no problem there. We don't need to spend much time on that. But the, thing, the, the reason we need to hone in on this point is because far too many people today, when they start facing the troubles and trials and turmoils that the psalmists face, the illness, the betrayal by friends and family, the, the, the financial ruin that they sometimes had, the enemies who oppressed them, when they start facing those things, the common response from folks today, even Christians, is, well, God just must not be there. Surely if God were there, none of these things would happen. But that's not the psalmist's response. The psalmist had absolute faith that God is there. And that all of these things that we face, not a single one of them are proof for atheism. Rather, they are simply times when we need to be leaning on Him. There are times when we need to be going to Him and casting our cares upon Him because He does care for us. We need to have the absolute faith that God is. But not only that, we need to recognize that God is creator. In Psalm 8, as we read moments ago, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. God is the creator of everything that we see. Therefore, he is the ruler. He is above everything. He's put it into place. Can you imagine the kind of power that that represents? And what Psalm 8 demonstrates to us is not just some, some ethereal, mystical idea of God, but the fact that every day as we look around us, we have an absolute reminder of God and of His great power. You see the trees out of the windows here? Those are there because God put them there. Those are there because God created them. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let's bring forth vegetation, and there was vegetation. God said, let there be animals, and there were animals. God lifted the mountains. He cleft the valleys. He put in the rivers and He put the boundaries for the ocean. That is how powerful and amazing our God is and all around us every day. When we look at the stars and the moon and the planets and we hear about how all of that works, it's just a constant reminder that God is and that God is the Creator. He is so powerful. We just can't even fathom and imagine the power that God has. And if God has all of that power, what can God do in our lives? If God can create the universe from nothing, what can he do in our lives? Can you imagine why the psalmist prayed to him with such fervor and such intensity? Here is the most powerful being in the universe and we get to pray to him. That's our God. But Psalm 139 takes it another level. In Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. If God is the creator of all things, He's not simply the creator of the universe in general. He's the creator of you in specific. He's my creator. He knows us. He made us. He can read us like a book. Because He's the one that put us together. And that could cause two different responses. Number one, in our prayers, number one, it might cause us to isolate. It might cause us to flee from God in shame because God knows every deep, dark secret. We can hide our secrets from one another. Sometimes we can even hide them from ourselves. But we can't hide them from God. But there's the other side of that, the other response that says that even though God knew absolutely everything about you, he still asks you to pray. There's not anything that you can take to Him that's going to shock Him because He already knows. And He still asks you to come into His presence and cast your cares upon Him and lay out your praises and, and, and confess your sins. He is our Creator. Now the next one is the shocking one. God is not only the Creator. To the psalmist. God is the source. Certainly, He is the source of good things. For instance, in Psalm 36 and verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. Life comes from God. In Psalm 24 and verse 5, He will receive blessing from the Lord. Blessing comes from God. In Psalm 42 and 43 and verse 3, Send out the light of your truth. Truth comes from God. Now, we accept this without question because James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. We don't have a bit of problem with this. We see God as the source of all good things, and we should. But what the psalmist also saw God as the source of is all the bad things. The psalmist did not come up with some dichotomy that God is the source of the good and and, and there's something else that's the source of the bad so that they could kind of let God weasel his way out of all the bad things that happen down here. They saw God as the source of all those things. For instance, if we look in Psalm 102, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an... Evening shadow, I wither away like grass. I'll tell you what, you read that entire psalm, that entire section, it reminds me of the people I've met who've been suffering with cancer. This is somebody who's facing illness, harsh illness, painful illness. And where does the psalmist say it comes from? It said it comes from God. Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Where did Psalmist see the source of the enemy? It was God. Because God had forgotten him and hidden his face. The enemy was oppressing him. Psalm sixty two, nine and ten. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, excuse me, in the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches excuse me, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Here in this Psalm, he's talking about financial ruin and financial prosperity. And the whole point here is that God is the author of that. God is behind that. God is the source of the financial struggles when those are of low estate. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. I don't know why the reference is not there. That's from Psalm 88. In Psalm 88, the psalmist just says, my life is a misery. I have troubles right and left. It's like I'm in Sheol as I live. Why? because god's hand lies heavy upon it because you overwhelm me with all your ways they saw god as the source of everything good and bad sometimes they saw him as the source in psalm 16:1 oh lord rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath psalm 61, excuse me How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's from Psalm 13, 1 and 2 that we read a moment ago. Sometimes, as it says in Psalm 6, 1, it's because of God's discipline and anger that they saw Him as the source. Sometimes, though, it's just because God didn't act. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? And the psalmist recognized, look, if God is the creator and He's the ruler of this world, He could act. And he didn't act, and that's why my enemy's still here. He could act, and he didn't act, and that's why I'm sick. He could act, and he didn't act, and that's why my loved ones have died. The psalmist saw that. Most of us have felt that, but we've had the idea that it's not Christ-like to, to actually say those things. But that's what the psalmist says. Some of you may remember the last lesson we had in the series where we talked about why we don't have to pray exactly like the psalmist. And in that... We pointed out that the psalm is a genre that wasn't just a biblical genre. It was, it was ancient literature, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, these, these other cultures around the Jews had the these, same genre of psalm. And, and we see the similarities. But here we actually see a difference. Herman Dunkel in his introduction to the psalms in 1988 wrote this. A profound manner of thought stands alongside this immediate and apparently primitive manner of thought. It seeks connection between Yahweh and the illness, which is very different from Babylonian prayer, where illness and distress are generally traced back to evil demons and magicians. Even at this point, one can see how Israelite religion sought to trace everything that happens in the world back to Yahweh, and to understand everything in relationship to Yahweh. The folks who have studied these, they find all kinds of similarities between the Jewish Psalms and the Babylonian Psalms and and the other psalms of that region, but here is the difference. In the other psalms, in the psalms of the other cultures, they didn't say that their God was the source of bad things. Oh no, those are demons and evil magicians. They're the source of bad things. But in the Jewish psalms, they connected everything back to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always kind of weary to do that. This is the one that kind of jumped out at me and said, I'm not, I'm not sure if I like this one very much. But I can't deny that's the way it is in the Psalms. They saw God as the source of everything. I like to have a healthy distance between God and all the bad things that happen. I like to talk about the, the free will choice of men being the cause. And I like to talk about Satan being the cause. And certainly we recognize that in many cases the direct cause is the free will choice of men and is Satan. And the reason why I like to make that distinction is because I'm afraid people will get mad at God. One of the things the psalmists were never afraid of is that people would get mad at God. They were never afraid of that. What the psalmist thought was, if you see something and it makes you mad at God, that's okay. Take it to God. That's exactly what they do in all of these psalms. They saw things that made them mad and they didn't understand why God wasn't doing something about it. And they laid it at God's feet, but what did they do? They took it to God. Because they saw God as the source, as the supreme being, as the ultimate, the buck stops here. Because they saw that, where else would they go? Nobody else could do anything about all this stuff. But God, as the ultimate power of the universe, we can take it to Him and He can do something about it. Perhaps we've made a mistake when we have so often tried to separate God from all the things that happened down here. I mean, we hear people say, oh, God must not exist because look at all these bad things. And so we start trying to come up with all these reasons why, no, it's not really God. And it sounds empty to folks, just like it would have sounded empty to the psalmist. They said, look, if God's out there, why isn't he doing something about this? The difference was they didn't stop believing in God. Instead, they took whatever all this was doing to them and they brought it to God in prayer. And I think one of the things that hinders our prayer lives the most is we've bought into this idea that we can't be upset at God and we can't lay any of these things at God's feet and so we don't ever go to Him about these things. And for some people, what that has caused is some resentment and bitterness toward God that builds up and divides them from God until they finally leave them. If we could see what the psalmist saw here and take it all to God, even when we're mad at Him or upset, it wouldn't call us a divide It would cause us to draw closer. And we pray more and more like the psalmist. They saw God as the creator. They saw God as the source. They saw God as the judge. God is the creator. Because he created everything, he has control. And he's the one that gets to set the rules. And he is the one that's going to judge us in the end. In Psalm 96 it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. God is the judge. So many folks in our world today, they look at their relationship with God and and they still have this kind of idea that nobody gets to tell me what to do. But God does get to tell us what to do. God is the judge. Then therefore we should entreat Him. Don't you understand that when we see God as that judge that we'll be going to him and praying to him and and asking forgiveness of him and entreating him because he's the one in control. But there was another aspect of this that the psalmist saw. Why was it that when they were being oppressed by their enemies and even though it upset them, they constantly went back to God in prayer because they realized God was the judge of their enemies too. In Psalm 94, verse 2 and verse 23, it says, Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. He, that's God, will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. When the enemies are pressing in, we can take it to God. Why? Because we know even though He may not do it in our time, He will judge the proud. He will judge those who persecute. He will judge those who betray He will judge those who are enemies of His children. And the psalmists continue to go to God because they knew the judge was there. And they were just waiting for Him to act, as they knew He eventually would. And of course, in Psalm 75 in verse 2, He points out, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. God is not a fickle judge. God has said, here is my standard. And that standard is the way it's going to be. And He judges everyone by that standard with equity. And so we don't have to worry that God will somehow judge this person over here by one standard or that person over there. He's given the standard and we can simply submit to what He says. The psalm of Saul, God is a judge who judges with equity. God is the creator, the source, the judge. He is the king. God is the king. And interestingly, not just king like of a nation, but notice what it says here. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all. God. I don't know where the scripture is on that one. That is from Psalm 95 and verse 3. Psalm 95 and verse 3. I'm apparently having, I'm just going to say, it, I'm apparently having some technical difficulty with these slides. I don't know what happened between me creating them and getting them on here, but something's messed up. But fortunately, all the verses have still been on there. Because I don't have all those verses memorized. But that's from Psalm 96. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In a society surrounded by polytheism, surrounded by nations that followed after all kinds of gods, the Jews continue to maintain that their God was supreme. And they point out, why would we pray to any of these other gods? Even if they exist, our God is king. He's greater than all others. Now, let me point out, the Jews were not polytheists. They didn't believe all those other gods existed. But their God was just their king. They're pretty standard in their belief from Psalm 86.10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Why go to anyone else? He's the king. He's the ruler of everyone and everything. He gets to lay down the law. But not only is he the king of the universe in some ethereal mystical sense, very specifically and very practically, he is my king. In Psalm 5, in verse 2, it says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. I couldn't help when I saw this passage to think about Thomas when he knelt before Jesus, my Lord and my God. What a great confession he was saying there about Jesus. But here we're just talking about the psalmist concept of God. He is my King and my God. This is not just some kind of general sense. This is very specifically, this is not just some kind of out there in the universe king. This is a king who should be integrally a part of my life every day, directing me, leading me. How could I not go to him? And then Psalm 145 and verse 1, I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. I will extol you, my God, my king. God needs to be ours. King, when God is our King, then we'll pray as the psalmist did. He's Creator, He's the Source, He's Judge, He's the King. He's also our rock and our fortress, our strong and mighty tower. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is the one on whom we can rely. God is always there. God is always dependable. Sadly, too often, we've learned from family, and friends and coworkers, and people in this world that we can't rely on them And sometimes we transfer that to God. But what the psalmist recognizes is that no matter what anybody else is like, God is dependable. I can surrender to Him. My rock. My refuge. I can't rely on kings. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Can't trust the kings. Can't trust in armies of personal strength, Psalm thirty three sixteen. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. I can't trust in riches. Psalm fifty two ten said, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. I can't trust sometimes even in family. Psalm twenty seven ten for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. I can't rely on friends always. Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But I can rely on God because he is my rock. He is my deliverer, my strong and mighty power. When everything else is against me, I know where I can retreat. I know where I can go. I know upon whom I can rely. I can surrender my life to God and he'll take care of me. That's why the psalmist prayed. Because no matter what was going on, they knew where safety was. So they gave themselves over to God. Our shepherd. Of course we recognize Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But it's also mentioned in Psalm twenty-eight and verse nine: "O save your people and bless your heritage, Shepherd, uh, <laughs> uh, carry the, and Shepherd and carry them forever." Give ear, O Shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock. Psalm eighty and verse one. We look closer at Psalm twenty-three. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If God is our shepherd, He is our feeder, He is our guide, He is our Lord, He's taking care of us. He's watching over us. When the Jews saw God as their shepherd, they knew that there was nothing that they would want, because God would provide. And so they prayed to Him. I'm a little concerned. I don't know if y'all are going to get to see the next point here. Oh good, you see that one. God is near. Now this is interesting because in several cases we find in the Psalms where they actually say, God, where are you? You're far away. Psalm 10 and verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Psalm 13 and verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? So here are these statements that claim God is not near. And yet what I want you to understand, this is not what the psalmist believed. This is not what they knew when they thought it through. This is how they felt in the moment as the hardship was hitting them. This is the feeling that welled up within them and they took it to God. But when they thought it through and they worked through this feeling, they understood this was not the case, in fact, in both of those psalms. Psalm 10 and verse 14 it says, But you do see, for you note mischief. See, back in chapter 10 and verse 1 it said, Where are you? Why aren't you looking? But by the time he had worked through the emotion and brought it to God and prayed to God about it, he was back to the point of being able to say, but you do see. And then in Psalm 13, verse 6, he had said, where are you? Why aren't you doing something about this? But as he had worked through that in his prayer to God, he came around in Psalm 13, and verse 6, and said, because God has dealt bountifully with me. The psalmist certainly at times felt this idea that God was separated and far away, but instead of being isolated from God, drew near to God in prayer, and as they worked through that, they were able to come around, back around to that faith. God is near. God is listening. God sees. God takes care. In fact, in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. In Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on Him. Perhaps the greatest demonstration that the psalmist knew that God was out there is the fact that they kept praying. You don't write 150 psalms to somebody you think is not listening. They kept praying. Because no matter what was going on in their life, they knew God was there. He was near. He may not be acting on their timetable. He may not be acting in the way they expected. But they knew God was there. They knew He was the source. They knew He was the creator. They knew He was the judge and the king. And they knew He would take care of them. And they knew that because, and I know you're not going to be able to see this one here, but right over here somewhere it says, God is love. 123 times in the Psalms it says something about God's steadfast love. In fact, if there's one thing that the Psalms highlight about God, it is the fact that God is love. Psalm thirty six seven, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Psalm five and verse seven, but I through your abundance of steadfast love will enter your house. Psalm six and verse four. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. How do I enter the house of God? It's by His love. How do I get saved? It's by His love. Psalm 25 and verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Don't remember me from the way I am. Remember me based upon your steadfast love. That's what the psalmist wants. Psalm 32 and verse 10, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts. In the Lord. By trusting the Lord, I am surrounded by a steadfast love. Psalm 53 in verse 1. Actually, I think that's Psalm 52 in verse 1. Yeah, Psalm 52 in verse 1. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. All day long. In the, the summer heat, and the winter cold, it doesn't matter what's going on, whether it's raining. All day long, The steadfast love of the Lord endures. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. That's from Psalm 69, 16. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love held me up. Psalm 94, 18. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 105. And then from Psalm 136. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 136. What a powerful psalm. Over and over and over again. The psalmist comes to this crescendo about God's steadfast love. Twenty-six times. Twenty-six times. Twenty percent of all the mention in Psalms about God's steadfast love is found in this psalm over and over again. And what the Jews would do with the psalm is that the priest or those officiating in their assembly would say the first line, and then the congregation would shout back the other line. Can you imagine what it would be like as you were surrounded by hundreds of thousands of Jews as the priest cried out, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And everyone around you said, For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who made the great life, For His steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day! For His steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night! For His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt! For His steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them. For His steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm! For His steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings. For his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings. For his steadfast love endures forever Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever.' He who gives food to all flesh for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for His steadfast love endures forever. This is the God the psalmist believed in. A God whose steadfast love endures forever. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, sometimes amazed that folks try to act like the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are different. Oh, that God of the Old Testament—he was just a big bad judge. He was kind of mean and a bully. It's the God of the New Testament that's a God of love. All I know is the folks who followed God into the Old Testament, what they saw was a God whose steadfast, love, endures forever. And no wonder they prayed to Him. Because they knew that no matter what is going on, He really loves me. No matter how anyone else treats me, no matter how anyone else feels, the world may hate me, the world may be opposed to me, my friends may have betrayed me, my parents may have left me, my children may have forsaken me, my spouse may have abandoned me, but my God still loves me. That's what the Jews saw. That's what the psalmists saw. How can you not pray to that God? His steadfast love endures forever. We can study the Psalms categorize, subdivide, analyze. We can look at the phrases and, and the words and all those things will help us. But until we get this down, everything else we do will just be trying to manipulate techniques. This is the heart and soul of praying like the psalmist. We've got to believe in their God. And when we do, Our prayers may not end up in a prayer book somewhere. Our prayers may not sound poetic. Nobody else in the world may ever repeat anything we say in our prayers, and nobody else may ever be impressed. But when we believe in the God in whom they believe, we'll develop that relationship that leads to praying like they pray. And we will praise like we have never praised before. And we will confess with honesty, openness. And we will offer our laments and our complaints and our petitions because we'll know our God cares. When we recognize that God is, that He is the Creator, that He is the Source, that He is the Judge, that He is the King, that He is our rock and our fortress, that He is a shepherd who is near and who loves us. When we see that, not just in our heads, but at a gut level of faith and trust, everything else we study about praying like the psalmist will just take place naturally. So the question is, of course, do you believe in this God?